<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the first day of the Democratic National Convention. We're going to have a bunch of guests on from there throughout the four days of the convention. But to start out, David Sirota is with us. His newsletter, TMI, as in Too Much Information, is really doing great. It's really growing. DavidSirota.com. You can find the whole thing. You can tweet him at David Sirota. And uh, I am a subscriber to TMI, and I recommend UB2. David has done some just absolutely great work. David, welcome back. I see your blogging or newslettering or whatever you would call what you're doing about how the U.S. Postal Service chairman has led the Senate GOP's $100 million super PAC. Now, that's not Louis DeJoy, right? That's right. That's the guy basically who hired Louis DeJoy. The Postal Service is governed by a governing board of appointees, which then hires the Postmaster General. And Donald Trump appointed, or not really nominated, a guy named Mike Duncan in 2018 to the Board of Governors. Mike Duncan is a former Republican National Committee chairman, so a political operative. Uh, He still serves on the Kentucky Republican Party, Mitch McConnell's Kentucky Republican Party. And he became chairman of the board, and he was then reappointed to a full seven-year term to run the Board of Governors of the Postal Service in December of 2019, getting a unanimous vote in the Senate. That includes all the Republicans and all the Democrats, except I should mention the presidential candidates were not there for that debate. So every Democrat except the presidential candidates voted to confirm Mike Duncan. And as you mentioned, uh, Mike Duncan is not just the former RNC chair. Mike Duncan is, as of January 2020, still on the documents as the chairman of the Senate Leadership Fund, which is the massive major Republican super PAC whose job it is, is to win the election for Senate Republicans. So concurrently serving as the chairman of the Board of Governors of the Postal Service and chairing the major Senate Republican super PAC designed to win the election for the Republicans. Yeah, that's pretty mind-boggling. I've got a map here. I caught it off Twitter this morning, a postal service reduction in sorting capacity. And they've got, you know, uh, circles around all the major places where sorting machines are being taken out. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, Columbus, Ohio, New York City, Philadelphia, Pontiac, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan area, up and down the East Coast. 
and there's five of them being taken out in Florida, every single one in a major city. It looks to me like these are all cities with Democratic mayors, Chicago as well, where they're tearing down these sorting machines. That seems like a flag, number one. But number two, I remember Stephen Colbert some years ago taking this whole thing of creating a super PAC and turning it into a money machine for yourself. I've been on Trump's mailing list since uh, 2015 when I sent him five bucks. And one of the things I've noticed is over the last three years, I've been getting three, four times a week emails from a couple of different super PACs. And what Colbert showed was that if you can put 100 million bucks in a super PAC and you don't win the election, you can keep that money for yourself. You can just put it in your own pocket later on. I'm wondering if that might be going on as well and if maybe this guy in the post office might be playing that game. Or is that is that Senate super PAC sufficiently separate from the super PAC that the Trump and his buddies are running that might be used to enrich Trump or pay for his TV network when he leaves or whatever? Or do you think well, that uh, that's, the you know, am- of, the, of the Senate leadership fund? It's not just any super PAC. I mean, it is the central super PAC that is running the Republican Senate campaigns. It is basically Mitch McConnell's former associates. And it is where the Republican, the big, I'm talking about the big Republican money, goes to mm-hmm. then be distributed to Senate races. So if you think the election is important, the presidential election is important, then you probably certainly think that the election for the control of the Senate is super important. And that's what that super PAC does. Now, you put it together, and the guy who's running the post office, the guy who's chairing the board that hired DeJoy, a Trump donor, to run the day-to-day operations of the post office is also simultaneously running a super PAC that exists to win the election. And now all the allegations about is the post office being used to manipulate the election, Trump himself essentially saying that mail-in, that he doesn't want mail-in voting and the, the post service shouldn't essentially help people get their votes in. I mean, this boiled into kind of a perfect storm of really, really legitimate questions. I mean, one of the questions is why would any, why would the Democrats vote this guy through. Another question is, why are people allowed to serve on the U.S. Postal Service's governing board while in Senate documents? And that's the key found. Our newsletter found. We dug up the Senate documents. That's what we do in our newsletter. We found those Senate documents in which Duncan, I mean, granted, buried the fine print. But he says, literally, you know, I am the Senate, currently Senate Leadership Fund chairman. Why would somebody be allowed to serve in that position and also run the ostensibly non-political postal service. I mean, what kind of laws? Well, for 240 years, David, you know, whoever has been running the post office has been relatively non-controversial and the post office has never, ever been politicized. So my guess is that, you know, the Democrats just were blindsided. They didn't think that Trump and the Republicans could be this evil. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, I think, I think, Tom, I think you're, you're, you're probably in part correct. I also would it's a say failure of imagination, shall we say. Yeah, and look, the Republicans have really tried to stop appointees from getting on that board to grind the governance of the Postal Service to a halt. And so, you know, that's the game that they play. They make it impossible, and then they make the choice somebody super extreme. I mean, the, now you've got the Democrats calling the Postmaster General, by the way, and Duncan to testify before Congress to see if there's political meddling. But, I mean, this should raise all sorts of questions moving forward of whether these kinds of political appointees should even be allowed to be on the Postal Service. I mean, I, to my mind... Right. Listen, if you're telling me you're running a super PAC in the election, you can't serve as the chairman of the Board of Governors of the Postal Service. Which will administer, I mean, in the 2016 election, 
there were 40, yeah, 40% 40 of all votes in 2016 were cast by mail-in ballot, 57.2 million votes. So you're putting the guy in charge of what, in a non-coronavirus epidemic year, was 40% of the vote. You're putting a guy in charge of the system that collects 40% of the vote, and this time around will probably collect 70% of the vote, who is a Republican operative you know, in charge of a, what, a $100 million fund or more? Exactly. $100 million is, is to date what that, that super PAC uh, has run. And I should mention, you know, the other conflicts, the corporate conflicts here, where it's, you know, money coming into the his, you know, Duncan's Kentucky Republican Party from leaders of FedEx, uh, Duncan himself saying that he had holdings in Amazon. I mean, DeJoy has holdings. In, and, and the reason I bring that up is those are the corporate conflicts, right, about, you know, the, yeah. the competitors to the Postal Service. They want specific things uh, from, a, from a weakened Postal Service so they can take over market share. I mean, it is a... David, real quick, we're, we're going to hit a break in nine seconds. I think that Trump told DeJoy, I'll make you a billionaire by letting your company take over a privatized post office if you'll put up with the crap for six months. You think that's possible? You know, it's, I, all I would say is I don't know that that's the case, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if this other guy, uh, uh, what's his name again? Mike Duncan. Mike Duncan. If Mike Duncan is in on that, uh, let's become a billionaire thing, too. David Sirota, TMI. DavidSirota.com is the website. Thank this you, David. is the Tom Thanks, Hartman Program. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Jessica in Chicago watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm putting on my protest sneakers tomorrow. There are protests all across the country at local post offices. And Indivisible is trying to get the word out. And Portland, I love Portland's protests. Tomorrow they need to take it to the post office. And oh, Portland has been protesting in front of the post office. Uh, there wonderful. have been protests here. There were last week, almost every day. Oh, wonderful. As far as I know. And I'm making posters today. Oh, so that's I'm very great. busy. That's great. I'm so you learned about this through Indivisible? Yes. Oh, that's great, Jessica. That is absolutely great. Where in Chicago are people going to be uh, showing up? Or is that a uh, tightly held secret? Or just... I'm just showing up at my town post office. It's all so across So just go the... to your local post office. Yes, all across. And yeah, all um, across I mean, country. Republicans are doing it, too, so I love it. Yeah, that's marvelous. I have a wonderful thing to tell you. All my Republican side of the family, eight of them are all voting for Biden and Camilla. Wow. Do you think, Jessica, that that's because of things like the Lincoln Project ads and Joe Scarborough in the morning, you know, a reliably Republican commentator oh, on the show? You're going to love this. It's because of Camilla. My sister said if it was anybody else, she would have voted Trump. But she likes Camilla. So I was so surprised. So it's all about Kamala Harris? That that's That's remarkable. That's impressive. Yeah. So I say swampy, Trumpy, start packing. Yeah, there you go. Okay, Jessica, thank you very much for the call. Great to hear from you. Good talking with you. Rich in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Hey, Rich, what's up? Tom, what do you think of uh, during the con convention, 
one of the speakers calling for a national day of mourning for the people who have died from COVID-19 involving all of the living presidents. Wow. It wouldn't surprise me, Rich, if we see that sort of thing happen during the convention itself, that, you know, one or more speaker or a person introducing a speaker may say, you know, 170,000 Americans have been killed by Donald Trump's incompetence and unwillingness to uh, confront a public health crisis. And uh, so let's have a moment of silence for those people or a minute of silence or whatever. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But in terms of a national you know, moment of silence, as it were, a, day, a national day of mourning, that's something that you do when the crisis is over. So, you know, if Biden comes into office in January and if we take February, March, April and basically lock the entire country down, flush the virus out, get rapid tests in everybody's hands. They now have 15 minute tests that are available. The billionaires are using literally all over the country. You know, if you want to go on a billionaire's yacht or come to one of their parties, you got to take these 15 minute tests. You know, the professional sports teams are doing it as well. You know, those need to be available to everybody. You know, I think that using the power of government, Biden might be able to pull that off in the first few months of 2021. And then by the summer of 2021, we may be where, you know, New Zealand, Australia, most of Europe are where, you know, you've got a few outbreaks here and there, but you're, stuck, you're, you're clamping down on them. I'm hopeful. And that would be the time for the National Day of Mourning, Rich. I think it's a great idea. And thanks for calling and suggesting it. So Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is tweeting about how it took eight days for a member of her family to get a COVID test back. And during that time, that person, who it turns out was positive, they didn't know for eight days, that person infected three other people in their family. Had they simply known, they could have quarantined that person. Even Mick Mulvaney, you know, right wing crazy former Tea Party congressman, you know, acolyte of the Koch brother. Even Mick Mulvaney is saying this is unacceptable during a pandemic when his own kids couldn't get tested, or one of his kids. The other one got tested and took seven days to get the results back. He says this is unacceptable. We've got a whole video about why this is, where the ideology that's driving, this is beyond incompetence. This is actually ideological. A new video out about this, you can find it over at TomHartman.com. Tom Harbin here with you. Greg Palast is on the line with us, the investigative journalist for the BBC, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, author of his new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. GregPalast.com, P-A-L-A-S-T.com is his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast. And Greg, welcome back to the program. You say America is finally waking up to the difficulty of mail-in voting. What do we do? I'd, I'd like to talk about solutions to this problem. I, you know, I get it that, you know, we've got a fairly advanced and sophisticated and successful program here in Oregon and Washington state and a few other states, but that there are a lot of states that are just fumbling along with this. We saw, you know, some big problems with New York, for example, that Trump is citing. And there are, of course, Democratic strategists who suggest that the whole, the whole thing that Trump is trying to do right now is simply to to undermine people's faith in mail-in voting. So people who are uh, you know, unwilling to go to the polls, again, this extraordinary poll that shows that of those who say they will vote by mail, this is from MU Law Poll, 81% support Biden, only 14% of people who say they're gonna vote by mail support Trump. 
that basically all this stuff about mail-in voting is a way to try to discourage Democratic voters. So give us your take on all this. Well, one, let's thank the Postmaster General for making it clear that they are trying to steal this election. He's woken us up to the fact that, in fact, mail-in voting has never been successful in America outside the West Coast. But I'm talking about in America, where, as our president says, there's mail-in voting, which is what we have in Oregon, California, Washington, Hawaii, Colorado. I'm not talking to you guys. You're going to get your ballot in the mail uh, automatically. I'm talking about America. And in America, that is places from Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, our swing states, we have a terrible history with mail-in voting where 22% of ballots, mail-in votes, never get counted. Half of those because you don't receive them. What do we do? I want you to use absentee or mail-in voting because I don't want your, uh, the people listening to die or for you to go and vote and then come back with a virus and kill grandma. What do we do? Number one, understand the problem. So most people who don't get their ballots, it's because you're not registered. Uh, believe it or not, if the ballot isn't mailed to you, you can't mail it. So how do you get your ballot? Number one, make sure you're registered. Every state allows you to check your registration online. Do that. I did. Greg Pallast here in California, no such voter. Okay, so I re-registered online. You can do that, too, in almost every state. Check your registration. How did you get dumped off the voting rolls, Greg, place you know? for 50 years. I'm sorry? How did you get dumped off the voting rolls? Well, it's very easy. I actually hunted it down. I'd left off. You had to put your zip code in three places on the registration form, and I didn't. This is at the DMV. But instead of telling you that you missed a line... They just throw out your registration. Same with your ballot. Twenty-two percent of all ballots, mail-in ballots, are not counted. Half because you don't get them on time, or you don't get them at all. Often because you're not registered, and that's usually not the post office. It's your wonderful GOP Secretary of State who's slow walking your ballot to you. They know who's going to be mailing in these ballots. Then the other. Now you get into the danger zone when you fill out that ballot. Remember, this is more difficult than the SAT. You make a mismark, you lose the whole thing. So if you put a, uh, a check mark instead of filling in a bubble, don't put in a smiley face, don't use a red pen or a pencil. In New York, we had 28%, 28% of all ballots were challenged. And this was by the Democratic Party leadership challenged those ballots. So when the Democrats challenge more than one in four ballots, Imagine what the Republicans will be doing in November. So don't let them challenge. Follow the rules exactly. We had hundreds of ballots thrown out in New York because the ballots didn't seal properly. People put tape on the ballot. You just invalidated your vote. 624,000 people in 2016 lost their mail-in ballots because someone challenged their signature. Now, Tom, did we have 624,000 fraudulent voters? No one was arrested. They just, but they, you get some boogaloo. Greg, how does that, how does that compare with the number of people who show up to vote? Like you went in Georgia with Christine, I'm, I'm forgetting your last name, the Martin Luther King's niece. Yes, Christine um, Jordan. Martin yeah, Luther went, King's uh, Yeah, Christine cousin. Jordan, that's right. Yeah, 92 cousin, years yeah, you, old, you, voting at the right, yeah, and, voting same voting station 50 years, and they threw her out. They said, you, don't, you can't vote here right. anymore. Right. So is the number of people who get provisional ballots or are purged from the list or try to physically vote in person roughly parallel to the number of people who don't successfully vote by mail? According to MIT, where is voter suppression worse? 
Definitely by mail. Four percent. We lose about four percent of our voters in in precinct voting, according to MIT, and twenty two percent in mail in voting by the same study. And as MIT said, if we lost twenty two percent of in precinct votes, there'd be riots. So yeah. We now have to take care of our vote because we have to send it in. By the way, avoid the post office. In most cases, you can pick up, if you don't get your ballot right away, go pick it up from your county board of elections. Every county will give you your ballot from the clerk's office. Second, if you can do it, put it in a drop box. Put your ballot in a drop box or take it to an early voting station and hand it in or take it to your county clerk and get your signature validated on the spot. I'm sorry if it sounds complicated to vote this year, but it is. If you want your vote to count, take these simple steps. It's not easy, but it's, you know, I'm not asking you to be like John Lewis and get beat up on a bridge near, you know, go into a coma to vote. I'm just asking you to go to the county clerk's office and pick up the ballot, fill it out, hand it right back in, get your signature verified. That is absolutely the safest way to operate. Yeah, I'm, you know, there was a, uh, a meme shared on one of the message boards uh, a week or so ago by some, some guy in his, his 60s or 70s, and he said, you know, I'm in that age or whatever, you know, where I'm at high risk for coronavirus, but my father volunteered to go to Europe and fight the Nazis at the risk of, you know, and not just the risk, he literally had people shooting at him. Nobody's going to be shooting at me, at least so far, if I go and try and vote. I am willing to risk a virus to fight for democracy. And that, you know, people blogging about how they'll, they'll crawl across ground glass to vote, you know, in this election to get Donald Trump and, and the GOP that supports him out of office. Please don't. But, but, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Let me make a but, suggestion. Go yeah, ahead, go for it. Don't crawl over glass. Don't mm. endanger yourself or your family. Stop thinking about election day. In America, we have election month. Most states, two to four weeks in advance, you can vote early. Go in, get your mail-in ballot, and take it into the early voting station. And in lots of cities, uh, and in lots of states, you can have legal ballot harvesting. Organizations like League of Women Voters and others are authorized to collect your ballot and take it to the county clerk's office, so you avoid... Try to go around the post office if you possibly can. Drop boxes, early voting stations, the county clerk's office, that's where you get your ballot, and that's where you drop it off. Try to avoid the post office because it's one more place. It's not the only place you're in trouble, but the big one is once those votes get counted. And by the way, I'm sure that Trump's lawyers watch the Democrats challenge one in four ballots. This is after Andrew Cuomo says, voting by mail is safe once he got your ballot. The party regulars started challenging those same ballots. So we have to be careful. Unfortunately, both parties are in the challenge game, but you're going to see Trump with his army of 50,000 challenge your votes. So what I would like people to do is volunteer to be at the opening of the ballots to make sure no one challenges votes by the millions. And, and you do that by... Very quickly. You have to volunteer. You sign up. In most states, you're going to have to get a poll watcher certificate. But stay for the count of the vote. It's after the cool. polls close that you have to worry. There you go. Greg Palast. GregPallast.com. And hang on just a second, Greg. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And his new book, which you're going to want to read, is How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vantage Voters. Greg, thank you. You're the best. You too.
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Just a heads up that I'm doing two book events. You know, normally when I show up in a town, you know, to do a book signing, the way that you hear what I have to say is by showing up at the bookstore. Well, you know, these are different times. And, you know, it used to be if you didn't live in that town, you couldn't even get to the bookstore. 
We are doing virtual events, live virtual events, August 25th with Powell's here in Portland. David Corton, in fact, is going to be talking with me. And in Seattle with Seattle Town Hall, again, a live virtual event. That'll be Friday, September 4th. So just a heads up on that. Ralph Nader wrote of this new book. It's called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. He said, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I wanted to share with you uh, some thoughts I had on this day. I caught part of Morning Joe, you know, the MSNBC uh, Republican program. And Joe Scarborough had George Will and uh, David Frum on. Now, uh, both have been guests on this program. David Frum has been on this program many times over the years. Joe Scarborough has never been on, to the best of my knowledge. But in any case, the three of them Oh, actually, Sean tells me Joe Scarborough has been on this show. Okay. I just don't remember it. In any case, uh, the three of them were talking about what to do. Also, they had Ann Applebaum on, who wrote this book, The Twilight of Democracies, uh, or of Democracy, which is a, a startling book. And they were you know, kind of putting the Republican Party in the context of oligarchy and tyranny and all that kind of stuff, which was fascinating. But then Scarborough kind of got into a conversation with Frum and George Will, David Frum and George Will, about, you know, isn't it, you know, unfortunate that Donald Trump has taken the Republican Party away from its traditional values of uh, its conservative values, uh, his phrase, of balanced budgets, personal responsibility and small government. And I'm watching this and they're all like, oh yeah, yeah, we need to get back to that. Small government, personal responsibility, family values, uh, balanced budgets. And I'm watching this thinking, oh my God, these guys are going to try and run this scam again once Trump is gone. And they're just kind of getting ready for it right now. I mean, let's just, let's just analyze these three phrases, balanced budgets, personal responsibility, and small government. Balanced budgets goes back to the 1970s. Uh, Jude Wininsky was then a Republican strategist. He wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in which he proposed his two Santa Claus theory. Wininsky said that the Democratic Party since 1933 had been the Santa Claus Party. They gave Americans Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, long-term unemployment insurance, food stamps, college loan and tuition support, federally guaranteed mortgage assistance, regulation of banks, foods and drugs to product, protect consumers, all this stuff. Republicans opposed every single one of these initiatives. And Wininsky said that if Republicans wanted to figure out how to become Santa Clauses too, they should become the tax cut Santa Clauses. And the, the strategy goes like this. When Republicans are in office, cut taxes massively on rich people and big corporations, thus driving up the budget deficit hugely. And then when Democrats come into office, start yelling and screaming about the budget deficit and how it's going to destroy the country. And this would force Democrats to shoot their own Santa Claus. And in fact, you know, it worked. I mean, Reagan was the first president to actively and aggressively use this strategy. He tripled the national debt from around $800 billion to over $2 trillion in just eight years. He ran up more debt in those eight years than every president of the United States, all the way back to George Washington combined. And of course, when Bill Clinton came into office and Republicans started screaming about the budget deficit, Bill Clinton took the bait and said, oh yeah, we will end welfare as we know it. And he cut all kinds of social programs, time limited them, you know, all, all these things. 
um, because the Republicans were successful in their balanced budget scam. Personal responsibility, the second thing that these guys mentioned. Well, this is an old trope that white supremacists have been using since the failure of Reconstruction. They argued African Americans are less successful in America because they fail to take personal responsibility for their lives, which is a convenient slogan for the, for the Republicans that lets them completely ignore racism structurally built into America's political, economic, and cultural systems. It also makes it convenient for Republicans to ignore the plight of poor white people trapped in dying parts of America like Appalachia or struggling with issues of mental health or addiction. After all, if people are always personally responsible for their own circumstances, then why should we bother doing things about homelessness or poverty or addiction or hunger or the struggle that racial, religious, and gender minorities face in achieving the, the American dream? And then, of course, small government. Every Republican since Warren Harding was elected in 1920 has used the phrase small government as a euphemism to, for cutting rich, uh, taxes on rich people and big corporations. But in any other regard, this is complete gibberish, small government. Republicans have consistently and repeatedly exploded the size of government over the years, driving our military spending up to the point where it's greater than the next dozen countries combined and throwing every kind of advanced weaponry imaginable at police forces all over the country. They give no-bid contracts to their donors. They sell off public lands at pennies on the dollar to miners and frackers. They waste hundreds of billions of dollars a year. In reality, the only size of government that uh, Republicans care about is their obsession with cutting public education and programs like Social Security and Medicare while simultaneously reduces, reducing taxes on the very, very rich. American conservatism has been a scam since 1920. And it's been a scam on steroids since 1980. And it continues to be a scam that exclusively benefits the very white and very wealthy people in this country represented by Scarborough and Frum and, and George Will. And no amount of hand-wringing hand or sloganeering or reinventing the party is going to change that fact. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So my question for you, is the Trump wipeout sufficiently large enough that Americans will figure this one out too? What do you think? Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans by Stanley B. Greenberg. This is from the introduction. This book tells an amazing story, and if you hadn't seen what happened to America over the last four years, you wouldn't believe it. It even has a happy ending that's none too soon for all of those of us who've had enough fighting, division, and enough politics. This time, the end of politics portends a country united and finally liberated from gridlock to address the nation's most serious problems. It ends with the death of the Republican Party as we've known it, while the survivors work to recreate the party of Lincoln, relevant for our times. It ends with the Democratic Party liberated from the nation's suffocating polarization to use government to advance the public good, as the country used to expect. You see, our country is hurtling toward a new America that is ever more racially and culturally diverse, younger, millennial, more secular and unmarried, with fewer traditional families and male breadwinners, more immigrant and foreign-born who are more concentrated in the growing metropolitan areas, which are magnets for investment and for people. 
The new America encompasses a vast array of family types and working families in which both the men and women face growing challenges. The new America is ever more racially blended and multinational, more secular and religiously pluralistic. The new America embraces the country's immigrant and foreign character. It now includes the college-educated and suburban women who want respect and equality in a multicultural America. America was shaped by major social movements, civil unrest, political battles, and government action at historic junctures, and by the choices the two national political parties took that created a more modern America. Each moved America away from traditional strictures on blacks, women, and immigrants. Each juncture made America freer, more equal, and more democratic. With the Democratic Party on a trajectory that aligned Democrats with the country's emerging civic norms and alienated the Republican Party from the country and from itself. America was changed profoundly by the battle to pass the civil rights laws that ended racial segregation and ensured blacks had the right to vote. Bipartisan immigration laws reopened the country to non-Anglo-Saxon immigration in 1965 and greatly expanded it in the late 1980s. The Supreme Court put women on a path to greater independence and equality when it declared in 1965 that women have a right to privacy and birth control, and in 1973 when it made abortion legal. And these different choices came to fruition with the election and re-election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president whose activist government produced a Tea Party movement and revolt that accelerated the polarization of the country and made attributes about race and immigration matter as never before. The Tea Party and Donald Trump battled to stop history and stop government. At each juncture, the Democrats were deeply divided, sometimes more than the Republicans. This was true on matters of civil rights, immigration, and abortion. Nonetheless, after these defining social issues were settled in law or by the U.S. Supreme Court, national Democratic leaders embraced and defended the social changes and new freedoms that aligned the party with a modernizing America and its values. After more than five decades of such choices, the Democratic Party is associated with equal rights, equality, gender equality, tolerance, openness to diversity, and more. The Republicans' electoral base was in the South and later in the Appalachian Valley and rural states across the country, so at each juncture they escalated their battle against these national changes. The party's national leaders ignored their own deep divisions and worked inventively to show they were champions of white people during the battle over civil rights and affirmative action. Its leaders scorned the sexual revolution and championed to this day a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal. They were opposed to women breaking free of the patriarchal family and winning equality. They mobilized against illegal immigration in the states and nationally fueled by Patrick Buchanan's three campaigns for president. Newt Gingrich led a revolution in the early 1990s that put the GOP into a total war footing against the Democratic Party, determined to expand the liberal welfare state and marginalize conservatism. But those forces defeated him. The Tea Party led the GOP's life-and-death battle against President Obama and his Affordable Care Act, fueled by Tea Party protests that elevated white racial resentment and hostility to immigrants. Defeating and delegitimizing President Obama was the last chance to stop the new America from winning. Obama's 2008 election, the Wall Street bailout, and the searing battle to pass Obamacare produced the Tea Party revolt and the Tea Party wave election of 2010, the most consequential election of our lifetime. 
It gave the Tea Party-fueled Republican Party effective control of the U.S. House and Senate, two-thirds of the governorships, and more than 60% of the state legislative chambers, which rushed to radically redraw the legislative and congressional maps to ensure big GOP majorities for a decade. The Tea Party-led GOP pushed the country into fiscal austerity and to deconstruct government to stop Democrats from using government for positive ends or paying off its growing coalition with new entitlements. The book R.I.P. GOP. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Bite.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. 
After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. On the line with us is Christine Pelosi, a member of the DNC and the Electoral College. In 2016, she served as a presidential elector for the state of California. She's the author of Campaign Boot Camp and Campaign Boot Camp 2.0. Democrats.org is the website. The Twitter handle is SF Pelosi. Christine, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since you've been on. Give us your take on this whole Protect U.S. Postal Service whistleblowers campaign. Well, good morning from California. Thank you for having me as I um, engage in the multitasking of my daughter's first day of public school on Zoom and Democratic Convention activities and the advocacy for some of the whistleblowers in particular and all of the postal workers writ large. But essentially, for the past several years, I've done a lot of work in the space of workplace harassment, discrimination, bullying, and abuse. And so over the years through my at SF Pelosi Twitter feed, I get a lot of information from people who are whistleblowers of one type or another. And there's some people I've been working with for several months who themselves or their family members are postal employees. A few of them have given me permission to share certain information about them. Some of them are African-American. Some of them have had COVID scares. One was actually on a respirator. And so when the combination of these cuts came in from Postmaster General DeJoy, the Trump donor, it's important to notice the two things that austerity does. And Tom, I know you talk about this all the time. It isn't just that seniors and veterans aren't getting life-saving medications on time. That would be bad enough. It's not just that people aren't getting their Social Security debit cards or their um, unemployment benefit debit cards. It's, It's not enough the personal harm that's coming to people. That's awful. And that alone would be a reason to stop these cuts. But when you remove a mail sorter from a post office, what you're really doing is making those employees work physically, ergonomically much harder to sort the mail. And it takes longer to do because you're not putting it on shelves. It's like telling your kid, clean your room, and they shove everything in the closet versus putting things on shelves and drawers in an organized way, right? We all can understand that. Mm -hmm. But when that's happening to postal workers, who then others are working full shifts out in the hot sun, again, Uh, risking COVID and other diseases, and they're essentially told that their labor doesn't matter, that their grievances don't matter, they're livid. And then when you combine that with limiting the places where people can drop off mail and literally the order that one allowed me to share that they were told to hold back 40 packages at one facility. It's supposed to be package in, package out on the same day, but this deliberate slowdown with Lord knows what in those packages could be life-saving medication, could be something that you ordered, could be Nikki Haley's uh, nephew's popcorn order. We'll never know. But that's got to be delivered. So these whistleblowers need to be protected. According to the Department of Labor Statistics, post office employees are always, unfortunately, in the top three of agencies whose whistleblowers receive the most retaliation. So they don't want to get Vinmond like the Ukraine whistleblower, they want to make sure that they are protected. And we want to make sure that the systems we built for this moment, labor unions, civil service, and of course, the platforms of public opinion can all be brought to bear to help these workers and obviously help all of us as consumers. 
Christine Pelosi, back in 2005, the Postal Service rolled out their vision for the next two decades, which included buying a fleet of electrified vehicles. They've got the largest private fleet in America and trucks that were powered by hydrogen. Within months, the fossil fuel interest kicked into action. And in 2006, we got this legislation forcing the post office to set aside $5 billion a year to pay for the retirement benefits, the health, health retirement benefits. 75 years from now, postal workers, you know, a naked attempt to cripple the fo- post office just when the post office was talking about going green. And they, they had a huge surplus at that time. Do you see any of this being undone? Yes, I do, for two reasons. One, as you mentioned, that happened in the last gasps of the Republican control of the House and Senate in 2006, that they started to uh, make them do what nobody has to do, prepay pensions for 75 years going forward. No other government agency has to do that. In fact, no other business does that. But also keep in mind, this has always been about competition. When I worked on Capitol Hill as the chief of staff to a member of the House um, Government Reform Committee from 2001 to 2005, everybody wanted a bank. DHL wanted a bank, Walmart wanted a bank, UPS wanted a bank. And we said, well, if anyone's going to get a bank, it should be the Postal Service, right? Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be these private companies. But they wanted, they want, what they want to do is drive the Postal Service out of business So it can be privatized and taken over by people who have profits over people and who, by the way, the first thing they would do when they took over the post office would be to eliminate that requirement that they prepay pensions 75 years in advance. We both know that. I've got it. Hang on just a second. Christine Pelosi, the author of Campaign Boot Camp, Democrats.org. Christine, thanks so much for dropping by today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And you can tweet her at SF Pelosi. Coming up on the science revolution, Noah Greenwald from the Center for Biological Diversity is here on Trump's latest actions to weaken the Endangered Species Act. You know, as we destroy the wild, we destroy ourselves. Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD, drops by and says it is terrifying to have a president who is psychotic and explains why Trump hates anyone who is loved. Former Assistant Secretary for Health under Obama, Dr. Howard Koh, tells us how Biden will handle this pandemic we're in. And lastly, in geeky science, we find out how our bones are made of stars. The Science Revolution, wherever fine podcasts are available. So I remember the late uh, 1970s when George Herbert Walker Bush was this patrician Republican who, uh, you know, had a, a big mansion in Maine and and he and his wife, uh, Barbara, supported abortion rights in the United States uh, in a big way, in a public way. All that changed somehow in the 1980s. Elise uh, Hogue is on the line with us, the president of NARAL uh, Pro-Choice America and author of a new book, The Lie, L-I-E, The Lie That Binds. ProChoiceAmerica.org is the uh, website and Elise's Twitter handle is I-L-Y-S-E-H or N-A-R-A-L. Elise, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Tell us about when and how we went from abortion being a nonpartisan situation that was supported by, you know, like the Bush family, to this extreme partisanship around this issue. 
Thanks for having me back, Tom. I um, am always happy to come on this show. And yeah, we, this Thank is you. a really both historic and current conversation because the lie that we attempted to expose in the title of the book is the lie that the radical right tells that they were moved to public participation, political participation, out of moral or otherwise concern for outcome of individual pregnancies and fighting abortion. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, as you point out, in the mid-70s, before, during, and after Roe, abortion remained mostly a nonpartisan issue, a nonpolitical issue, I should say. And in fact, the radical right was mobilized to political participation, fighting school desegregation in the late 60s. And then they sort of careened and converged with Phyllis Schlafly and the Eagle Forum's efforts to kill gender equality through defeating the ERA. Both had a similar interest. And it was in propping up a largely white Christian patriarchy against a backdrop of an incredibly changing world in the 60s and the 70s. And it wasn't really until the late 70s that they landed on the idea that abortion as an issue could be politicized and weaponized in service of this idea of halting social progress. The first candidate that took it on was Ronald Reagan in 1980. He was very transactional with the radical right and the first Republican platform that actually can uh, contain any opposition to reproductive rights was that same platform in 1980. So part of the goal of the book is to set history straight because what we saw in the forces that converged around Trump in 2016 was really a realignment of what we think of as an anti-choice opposition, but was really always part of a radical right that was committed to halting racial and gender progress. So this, uh, basically, this isn't just about largely men controlling largely the bodies of women. This goes way beyond that. This is about white male power in the United States. Uh, Is that the essence of what you're suggesting? I think that's right. I mean, look, laws targeting reproductive oppression have always had disproportionate impact on women of color, black women specifically in this country. And you can't actually separate the origin of white supremacy from the decision to weaponize abortion and the movement that actually moved it forward. One of the things that we talked about in the book is that when the Federalist Society was sort of casting about for an issue that would provide a litmus test for conservative right-wing aspiring legal minds, justices, and lawyers, they found that antipathy to Roe, antipathy to the idea that women should be able to control their own reproduction, mapped really well onto antipathy towards other forms of social progress. That is a body of work that actually was replicated in 2019 um, that showed the same among the public. And so gender oppression and Racial oppression have always been intertwined, and they remain intertwined, but it's crucially important to understand that we have to tease them out in order to combat them. So back in the 70s, when abortion was, and birth control for that matter, I mean, you know, the birth control pill was legalized or approved by the FDA, as I recall, in 1961, and there's been an opposition to that, too, among the the hardcore so-called Christian right. Back then, there was no group that said, we're the white male patriarchy. (laughs) You know, it's become more and more clear that that's the way that the Republican Party identifies itself today. But in the 70s, nobody was saying that, at least out loud. Where was 
that patriarchy, that white patriarchy centered, you know, brought it forward? It's a great question. And I think nobody was saying it because they didn't have to, right? It had been the way of the land since America was established on Native American land for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think, yeah, for white Europeans, thank you for what we try to trace in the book is that there were movement architects, forefathers that recognized that their lock on power was actually being threatened. It was being threatened by changing demographics, but it was also being threatened by movements that were ascending through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And it was obviously the civil rights movement, which led to the black power movement. It was the women's liberation movement, as well as the LGBTQ movement. All of these were requiring people who were committed to a sovereign lock of white control to establish new institutions. And they didn't go out and say, hey, these are institutions dedicated to the white patriarchy, although certainly you can track intersections between the people who did this and institutions like the KKK. But they were people like Paul Weyrich, right, who we really talk about in the book as someone who took money from the Coors family, which we know has roots in Nazism and white supremacy. And they started to build infrastructure, and they started to build infrastructure that was dedicated to maintaining the status quo. So whether it was the American Legislative Exchange Council or Americans United for Life or Heritage Foundation or Federalist Society, all of these institutions were built in service of that status quo. And it's interesting that you mention contraception because one of the things we do talk about in the book is while the FDA certainly acknowledged efficacy of contraception in 61, the Supreme Court made contraception legal for unmarried women in 1972, the year before Roe. And this had massive implications, certainly culturally, where sexual liberation was really threatening some of the cultural norms, but also economically, where women who suddenly had access to contraception were entering the workplace and staying. They didn't have to leave if they accidentally got pregnant, and they were challenging what had traditionally been a male power structure in the workplace for access to the C-suite. We want pay equity. And nobody liked that, or I shouldn't say nobody liked that. Lots of people liked that, but nobody in this movement liked that. But when they were batting about this idea of, like, how do we build a Trojan horse around one of these issues, it was determined that, you know, contraception was a little too popular. But it is not, you know, every time someone is surprised, when someone who identifies as pro-life or anti-choice or anti-abortion also objects to contraception, I say that is absolutely part of the underlying ideology from the beginning. These things are not contradictory. Yeah. How does this inform us about fighting these battles or, for that matter, waking people up? You know, Trump is the manifestation of these forefathers' ultimate dream, and we have to understand that we have to take these issues all in an intersectional way, that we can't fight for reproductive rights without fighting for racial justice and gender justice. And we have to lean into them, not away from them, to win in 2020. Brilliant. Very, very well said. Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, the author of a new book, The Lie That Binds, ProChoiceAmerica.org. Thanks, Elise. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Don't Label Me, an Incredible Conversation for Divided Times by Urshad Manji. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled Our Division Problem. Math teachers tell us that to solve a division problem, we must find the common denominator. 
from its birth, this nation's common denominator has been diversity. I'm not a fan of that word. A neighbor recently sniped, it divides people. Well, that's one slant on diversity. The word itself comes from the Latin to turn aside, or as some take it, to splinter and separate. But nature would disagree with that interpretation. Every afternoon, Lil, you meander in the park. Here, diversity is the lubricant of a humming engine. Do you breathe in just one aroma? How about two? Five? She's got a bunch of rescue dogs, and she's writing this book to them, FYI. That's some head tilt you've got going, Lily Bean. You're catching on to my crazy talk, aren't you? It's bananas to isolate and enumerate the smells enveloping you. None of them on its own captures the magic of the intermingling whole. You're gaga about the park exactly for its kaleidoscope of scents that jostle with each other and sometimes get up your nose. See where I'm going with this? Diversity itself doesn't divide. It's what we do with diversity that splits societies apart or stitches them together. That paradox is, to do diversity honestly, that we can't be labeling all of diversity's critics as bigots. You disagree, Lil? Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you haven't let me explain mine. Welcome to the real world, you say? Well, this isn't exactly the real world, is it? You're a conversing canine, for God's sake. Okay, okay, you're right, enough of my defensiveness. Getting my backup won't help you hear me. But if I'm going to work on me, then I need assurance of a fair hearing from you. Deal? Note to self, never expect the mother-daughter relationship to be a picnic in the park. As I was about to explain, Lil, there's more than one way to look at a situation. Some people oppose diversity because they are bigots. Others, though, are skeptical of diversity because how we, its champions, practice it. We're fixated on labeling, and labeling drains diversity of its unifying potential. Since the founding of the U.S. Republic, Americans have extolled the idea of unity in diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one, became a gallant motto for the union of the original 13 colonies. No argument, Lil, the colonists were themselves colonizers of native people, of black people, of women and of poor white men. I acknowledge that such labels didn't drop from the clear blue sky. These groups bore the brunt of keeping the United States united. So I'll keep it real too. E pluribus unum has always been an uphill battle. Americans fought a gruesome civil war over the obscenity of slavery, whose promoters reduced human beings to labels. A century earlier, drawing unity from diversity proved to be onerous business of a different sort. It demanded that ardent revolutionaries check their egos. Just before voting on the Constitution, the framers listened to a letter from Benjamin Franklin. He, in turn, had somebody read it out loud. Addressing each signatory as if speaking to him in person, Franklin confessed in the letter, quote, I do not entirely approve of this convention at present, but, sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Take a moment to digest this, Lily. A world-class rebel states publicly that he doesn't know it all, that he's missing something obvious to others, that he might be wrong. Was Ben Franklin written off as a wimp? Nope. His fellow framers knew the value of humility in making the impossible happen. For America's revolutionaries, breaking free from a British despot would be the relatively simple part. Much harder would be replacing despotism with something democratic and doable. The framers' solution? To enshrine and institutionalize diversity of viewpoint. Their logic? In a republic of vastly different regions, cultures, peoples, and perspectives, there's nation-building power in airing disagreements. Diversity of opinion as a common denominator. Sheer genius, Lil. 
In Why Societies Need Dissent, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein describes this funky formula as, quote, the framers' greatest innovation. Americans, I'm thrilled to tell you, still aspire to that vision. In June 2018, the Harris Poll released findings about what unites and what divides our country. Among the factors that unite, being open to alternative viewpoints. But the deflating reality is people generally mean that other people should be open to their viewpoints. Today, living the revolutionary ideal seems a non-starter, and for various reasons. Hands down, the most controversial reason is the changing makeup of America. It's a landmine of fraught labels, frail identities, and engulfing emotions. Can we talk about it? In this country, brown, black, and multiracial babies outnumber white babies. Beyond our major cities, small towns have started to mix it up. Take Storm Lake, Iowa. The editor of its community newspaper estimates that, quote, 88% of children in our elementary schools are children of color. We speak 21 languages, end quote. Sarah Smarsh, a journalist from Kansas, says that in the past 10 years alone, and thanks to the rise of agricultural agribusiness, her farming community has become home to workers from Mexico, Central America, and the Middle East. That's a bundle of change in a flash of time. Thank God America has a history of muddling through. Problem is, Americans can't depend on the past to predict that the future will be tickety-boo. Sure, some prejudice has subsided as successive waves of migrants have integrated. And she continues from there. The book, Don't Label Me, by Irshad Manji. We have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. I really enjoy doing these separate from what we're doing on the air because sometimes I can say things that would be impolitic or inappropriate to say on the air. Like the name of the website that I'm talking about in this video, and I lay it out and share it with you on the video. And this website is just outing these judges that Donald Trump and the Federalist Society have been sending through Mitch McConnell's Senate like a frigging assembly line and how unqualified they are, how hateful they are, how aggressively they've worked to screw students. Well, one of them actually said that women who are on birth control pills, that should be reason to fire people. Right? I mean, this is just insane. You can check it out over at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 